0: Hi there and welcome to this episode of Take Home Reading, a new audio series from the Wheeler Centre. In each episode, we'll be speaking to an Australian writer about their latest book and hearing a reading from it. This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders, past and present. We pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of all lands this broadcast reaches. I'm Stella Charles and I work in the programming team at the Wheeler Centre. Usually I host our monthly reading series, The Next Big Thing, but since we haven't been able to gather together for a few months now, we thought we'd bring these readings to you instead. Today I'm talking to Chris Flynn. Chris is the author of The Glass Kingdom and A Tiger in Eden, which was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Book Prize. His fiction and non-fiction have appeared in The Age, The Australian Griffith Review, Mianjin, The Saturday Paper... And McSweeney's, among many other publications. Chris has conducted interviews for the Paris Review and is a regular presenter at literary festivals across Australia. He lives on Phillip Island next to a penguin sanctuary. Chris's latest novel, Mammoth, is the focus of our conversation. It was published in April with UQP. Thank you so much for joining me, Chris.
1: That's my pleasure, Stella. It is good to see you, especially at this time. <laughs>
0: Nice to see you too. (laughs) Let's start with the title, Mammoth. Who or what is this mammoth? And can you tell us a little bit about them?
1: Yeah, the mammoth is an actual mammoth that um, was on sale. Well, it was the tusks of a mammoth that were on sale at a natural history auction in New York in 2007. And he'd been dug up in about eighteen hundred. By, at the behest of um, President Jefferson at the time, an early Republican president who wanted to, who became fascinated with the idea that there were these huge creatures that once wandered the American plains and wanted to show the Europeans that America was a, a pretty big, strong country. And we they used to have dinosaurs there too. Not that anyone knew what dinosaurs were then. Um, but... The Natural History Auction 2007, there was the mammoth, there was the skull of a Tyrannosaurus Bataar, there was a, a million year old prehistoric penguin on sale, there was the severed hand of an Egyptian mummy, there's the meteorites, gold nuggets, a shark's teeth, all sorts of weird ephemera. And that was an actual auction. They, they take place every year. And so the book is set the night before the auction, and it's these creatures who are all assembled in sort of dioramas. Um, waiting to go onto the hammer the next day. And so they're having a chat to each other and telling each other how they wound up there.
0: <laughs> I love that. And I also love the word. I wonder if you're sick of the word yet, <laughs> but I feel like mammoth is actually really fun to say out loud. So it's a great
1: title. Oh, that's a funny thing to say. No, no one, no one said that at all. Um, it, It is quite a satisfying word, isn't it? Um, and it has that that extra meaning to it. I love book titles that can be read in a different in a few different ways, and considering it's just one word and three of the letters in that word are the same letter <laughs> um it's funny that it has such an impact, you know because he is telling quite a a big story, the mammoth you know it 's not just about when he was dug up, but also it goes back to when he lived you know at the end of the ice age about twelve thousand years ago and Um, he's looking at humanity's folly across the, across the generations. Um, and I had always kind of wanted to write a novel about deep time and, um, looking at human humanity's mistakes across time and how we keep making the same ones. And it was, it took me a while to work out how to do it. But once I realized the mammoth himself was going to be the narrator, it became this real joyous, um, Adventure for me, um because he could observe us throughout the ages, and his friends, the other fossils could jump in and they had been unearthed at various different points in history and they could tell their stories they're you know looking at the um the origin of human influence climate change and uh, the beginnings of scientific racism and um lots of other very serious uh you know grand human themes but all sort of looked at in a very through a very curious humorous animalistic prism.
0: I love that. That's what I was going to ask you about, I guess. And and aside as well, I'd never heard the expression deep time until I was reading around for this book and yeah, I, I really love that phrase. As you said, the scope here is enormous. It's mammoth. Pardon the pun. As you traverse time and place, in a really extraordinary way, and I feel like every person that I've spoke to, who's yeah, I feel like every person that I've spoken to, or every review of this book that I've read, calls it a, a project that shouldn't have worked but did. <laughs> You're like, and remember you telling me about it a couple of years ago, and I, I thought it sounded insane <laughs> in its sc- scope and ambition, but brilliant what was the initial spark? How, how did it grow? And then how, how did you cut it back? How much did you cut out in order to kind of end up with a book length work? I'd love to hear a little bit about that process.
1: Ah, oh yeah, that is a good question. Um, it grew quite organically, um, and in a very frustrating way for me as a, as a, as a creative and that, it's sort of, it's a bit of a reflection of my brain, this book, in that um, I I struggle to understand how my creative brain works. I wish it worked in a more linear and rational fashion, but it doesn't. Um, So I will often have ideas that seem very disparate and, and I get a bit hamstrung by that. I sort of think, oh, I've got like The ideas for twenty different books here. How the hell am I ever supposed to um, get through this? And where do I start? And 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 then through time, sometimes years, you know, I'm pondering these ideas, and I have these epiphanies where I'll think, oh, wait a minute. These twelve ideas they're all part of the one idea, aren't they? shit <laughs> that's really annoying. I wish I'd spotted that earlier and so mammoth was a bit like that where I'd had a, a bunch of different ideas and um, I you know I, I heard about Jefferson um, after reading some of his letters that he had wanted pioneers to go out and find him mammoth bones, and I thought that was really fun and i I toyed with the idea of writing a very grim. Sort of Cormac McCarthy esque novel about men going out into the wilderness to, you know, against the elements and you know, struggling to dig up these bones. But it was it was awful. And um, and then I heard about these dinosaur bones at the auction, and Nicholas Cage and Leonardo DiCaprio were fighting over them um, to show how macho they were. And uh, um, it just seemed like there was all these different ideas going on: the Irish Revolution, the French Revolution, all sort of, um the storm in my head. And it wasn't until I realized that the mammoth himself would tell the story and was able to channel his voice um, that it all, I realized that I could tell quite a lot of stories in the one story. Um, But then you're right, it became massive. And I started to worry about whether this was going to be a book that would just go on forever. Um, I did cut out some things. I, I cut out some fun things that I haven't really talked about. Um, I, I there was a whole section that was going to be set in um, in Las Vegas um, in the fifties uh, when um, during nuclear testing, and there was going to be a whole thing there. But um, I think that's actually part of a completely different book. So. <laughs> um, for me, it's about, it's about picking and choosing, okay, I've got all these ideas. Which one is part of this book? Which one's part of another book? It's happening to me again right now. I'm, I'm working on my next book and it took me a while to realize that four different stories were part of the one story, but I'm glad that I've finally worked it out because now I can actually get to work.
0: <laughs> you can pick that up again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to know what kinds of things you are reading while writing Mammoth both in terms of your historical research, which you've touched on a bit just now, but also were there any other works of fiction that you turned to or that influenced you in any way?
1: No, I, I, I did read a lot of nonfiction once I realised that I was going to have to research because I'm not, I'm not really qualified to you know, do, do this kind of book really. Um, so I, I read a lot of nonfiction um, exploring the different aspects of things I didn't know much about. Um, but in terms of fiction, I'm, I'm usually a bit wary of reading much fiction when I'm writing it. Uh, I'm always a bit scared of mission creep and of um, um, things coming into it that are from other people's stories. And But I did, um, there is a bit of a reference probably in the book to Sebastian Barry's um, Days Without End, um, which is a book that I absolutely loved. And so stylistically, particularly in the sections where the Irish siblings are um, are following the Lewis and Clark expedition. It, I, th- I think it gets a bit Sebastian Barry esque there, <laughs> um, but other than that, there wasn't much fiction that um, that had a strong impression on me when um, when I was writing this. No,
0: there's a lot of joy in this book. It's very witty and playful. How important was humor to you in engaging your reader, especially when it comes to the more serious issues of climate crisis and the destruction of the natural world. It definitely feels like humor is key for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I do struggle with books that are deadly serious. And, I, when I realized this book was going to be partially about climate change and, um, mankind's early influence on the climate at the end of the ice age and how that has, um, affected us ever since, um, I got a bit worried that it was all going to be very, very preachy. And uh, uh, it is an ongoing concern of mine with climate change writing that it can be a bit proselytizing. And and you're often preaching to the converted as well. Like no one's, no one's reading your climate change fiction saying, you know, I don't agree. <laughs> People are on your side, so you don't have to, you know, hit them over the head with it. And so I wanted it to be a little bit more, uh, a bit, a bit lighter, a bit more humorous. I think it's a nice way to approach a serious topic by um, making people smile about it. And and you know, there's I mean, I live in regional, regional Victoria, and some of my friends down here they're just mechanics and um, fishermen that you know, real salt of the earth characters. And when my book came out, they were all like, "Oh, you've written a book, have you? Haven't read one of those in a while." And you know, but they read it and. It was nice to see the reaction of, you know, like one of my mechanic friends who's like, "Oh, that's," it was, it was kind of about climate change, wasn't it? You know, to to see them slowly sort of thinking about that um, in non-sort of binary terms, to like to, to really think about it a little bit differently because it's easier for them to access it because of a bit of they can have a laugh too, you know. And I just think it's important for us to be able to. Um, talk about serious things but um but not forget that as humans we are essentially always looking to make each other laugh it's uh, it's our, our natural state is kind of one of banter isn't it you know where you i mean i guess we've all forgotten it because we don't really hang out in groups anymore but <laughs> uh, maybe maybe coronavirus has met has meant the death of banter i don't know but um um I guess once we all get back together we'll all be we'll all be trying desperately to make each other laugh and tell each other funny stories and talk over each other and um we'll remember what it means to be human beings who who mingle in social groups um so a book like this is kind of like my literary version of that where I'm you know trying to have that conversation with the reader where I'm you know poking them all the time, trying to make them laugh. I probably tell too many jokes in it and, um, I'm sure not all of them. Um, I'm sure some of them probably fall flat, but, uh, but you know, I, I do enjoy, um, uh, books of ideas, um, and where I can't resist having characters that will, you know, say something stupid.
0: I think that's probably key to why the book has resonated with people in the way that it has. The pitch is so out there. And it's been heartening to see so many different kinds of people reading it, as you say. What kinds of feedback have you had from readers in terms of, A, whether they found your jokes funny (laughs) or um, B, how they've felt after reading it?
1: The thing about writing a book that's humorous is that you have to just accept the fact that um, you're kind of setting yourself up for, um, for criticism, that's fine. I've written criticism myself for years and I'm, I'm all good with that. But a book that's got lots of humor is kind of a nice one for people to be able to have a go at. Um, generally, with a book like this, people will say, oh, I really enjoyed that book. I didn't like that bit. I didn't like that joke. That was that was that was a terrible joke. So if if that's the worst thing they're going to say about it then 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 that's fine, you know. So having a few bad jokes in there is kind of a way to uh um to be able to absorb criticism and let people, you know, give you a bit of feedback. Um the it, it has been very heartening that the book has found a much wider audience than I ever expected. I mean, it, and it's pure concept, it sounds bonkers, you know, this 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 whole idea, you think people have asked me many times, how did you pitch this to your publisher? You know. Um, in actual fact, the publishers there was a lot of publishers who were quite interested in it. Um and UKP were super enthusiastic um right from the beginning and have been ever since. So that's that's great. But it's been reprinted four times now and, and it's only been out for four months. So that's a bit of a shock to me. But it's kind of nice to think that um, in this, it's come out at a weird time. It came out right at the start of um, of the pandemic when bookstores were closed and everything was up in the air, and no one knew what was going to happen. And you know, fast forward four or five months, and we're you know in Victoria anyway, probably worse off than we were than we were before. Um, But people are reading books, and um, this is giving people maybe a little bit of uh, light relief and a chance to think about some big issues in a, in a in a slightly different way. And climate change, of course, is lurking in the background the whole time during this pandemic, you know, and it's easy to get uh, to, uh, you know, very, very focused on COVID-19, but um, there's probably a slightly bigger problem uh, lurking just behind it. So um, I hope that we can learn some lessons from this time and uh, um, still take the word of scientists and medical professionals, um, seriously after all this and, um, turn our energies towards defeating the, uh, the big end of level boss that still faces us.
0: What kinds of things have you been reading during this time? Do you crave light relief as well? What have you found yourself seeking out?
1: I've been enjoying, um, a little bit of escapism. Yes. Uh, um, Two of the books that i've absolutely loved this year have been um the dictionary of lost words by pip williams which has done really really well and i'm so pleased it has you know a small publisher a firm press and hasn't had a lot of media and i at first i thought how come it's you know it's selling really well and then you read it and you realize that some of the things are quite difficult to talk about in the press <laughs> um and the other book that I've read, I read it a few months ago, and it's just coming out, actually, is um, Kate Mildenhall's book, The Mother Fault, which jumps forward into very near future Australia, very near, in that um, she's managed to predict quite you know, scarily some of the things that were that are kind of coming out now. Um, and that's a great book that's really got this sense of propulsion and excitement to it. Um, it's a, a genuine sort of literary adventure story almost, and th- and those things are kind of rare. Um, so I've loved um, those kind of books that take me into a completely different different world um, from the one that I uh, see out my window every day, although it's quite a nice one I see out my window, so I can't really complain.
0: <laughs> Normally now I'd ask you to read a little bit from the book because I'd love our listeners to hear from Mammoth. But I think this time we're going to try something different and share a couple of clips from the audiobook. It's narrated by Rupert Degas who has a really epic gravelly voice. Yeah, his voice has a lot of gravitas and so it definitely suits the idea of a 13,000-year-old mammoth pretty perfectly, I think. But before we play the extracts, is there anything that you you need to say to set them up?
1: The audiobook is... Uh quite an incredible experience, even for me who, you know, when I was able to direct Rupert a little bit in terms of the voices of the characters, he's performed all of the voices and throughout the book. And we were able to talk quite a lot about, um, which famous actors he might try to impersonate. He's an amazing impersonator. And so the mammoth himself is a bit of a Orson Welles, um, nod. And, um, Some of the other characters, I just couldn't believe it when I was sent the audio excerpts. I, I I just could not believe that it was the same, the same person doing all the voices. Um, So it was a real joyous, fun thing for me to listen to, and I had to pinch myself occasionally and remind myself, wait a minute, I actually wrote this. It's it's quite a pleasure to hear the book performed. So the audio book for this is not just the book being read; it's being performed. It's almost like listening to a theater piece. It's. Um, a very satisfying experience that is quite different to reading the book, I think. Um, so um, the excerpts I think we've got is just from the beginning, where the mammoth is in the in the auction house, sort of complaining about his lot in life, and then the tyrannosaurus sort of comes in and asks him, "Who are you talking to?" You know? and, and because as they realise that the humans actually can't hear them, and they but they can hear each other, so that's when the whole thing begins.
2: The passage of time is difficult for me to phrase. I know only that day follows night and then the sun goes down and the cycle begins again. Thirteen thousand three hundred and fifty-four years is too great an amount of time to comprehend, and yet that is what I am led to believe has elapsed since the antediluvian days. The primeval struggle for survival, man versus beast, Those were heady times. We lost, of course, but we gave you a run for your money. The first time I killed a man, that was a good feeling. Clovis you were back then. You hunted in packs, just like Smilodon. And you were much weaker, but somehow also stronger, more resourceful. Clovis did not roam the grasslands, you stayed in one place. A group might live in a cave, or a basic settlement constructed from hewn trees. You worked marvels with your awkward hands, cleaving and building, making things, tools and weapons, representations of beasts you blithely harvested, carved from the severed horn of a coelodonta antiquitatis or from the tusk of my dead sister. Remember, the one you speared? I hated you. We all did. Glyptodon, Megalonics, Arctodus, Camelops, Bison Priscus, Equus, all were hunted without mercy. You ate our flesh and wore our hides. You used our bones to fashion ever more complex butchery devices. You burnt the grasslands and forests. You starved us. You drove us to our deaths over cliffs. You hurled rocks and dug pits. We fought back, but victories were rare. There were too many of you. You were as countless as the stars. The taking of a life, even that of a pitiless biped, is no small thing, but it made me proud at the time. You had plenty of bodies to spare, you wouldn't miss one of your hunters. Every one of us that fell was a disaster, a repository of wisdom and ancestral memory stretching back tens of thousands of your so-called years. It is true what you say, after all. We do not forget. We cannot. When one of us dies, the experiences of thousands disappear with them. Our bloodlines carry more than a blueprint for tusk and trunk. They are replete with the history of family. To kill a mammoth is to kill its primogenitors. One piercing spear can destroy a lineage. This is why the arrival of Clovis in our lands was such an affront. You were bent on not just killing us for pelts to keep you warm in winter and for meat to feed your young, but on erasing us from the world. We knew that if we did nothing, it would soon be as if we never existed at all. Our bones would sink into the tar we would be forgotten. You tried to ambush me where the canyon narrowed. You thought I didn't know you were up there, that I could not see the trickling pebbles that your strange feet dislodged. Also, I could smell you. Hygiene was never your strong suit. I had walked that way hundreds of times, and just like my forebears had rubbed my flanks against the rocky outcrop, Our kind had been doing this for so long that the stone was polished smooth, reflective as water. It was an excellent means of removing ticks and having oneself a good scratch. I knew something Clovis did not. Those crags further up may have offered prime concealment, but they were unstable. Deep memory told me of how the mountain had collapsed when the earth shook how it might do so again under similar pressures. I threw my considerable bulk against the canyon wall. The loose stone crumbled beneath your bony feet. Boulders fell, and men with them. Those of you who were uninjured ran. One of you had an arm pinned under the fallen rocks. Your frantic attempt to push a boulder off the crushed limb was in vain. Your bloodied feet scrabbled in the dirt. It must have been frustrating being trapped, terrifying perhaps as I bore down on you. You fell silent as I stood astride you. Choking dust swirled in the air. You closed your eyes and played dead. I leant down and nudged your body with my tusk. You opened your eyes again and squealed in pain. I knew if I pushed hard enough, your arm would tear away at the shoulder. I considered doing that, but I am not like man. I do not torture for pleasure. Your free hand slapped at the ground. You were attempting to reach a stone knife that had fallen out of reach. Still had some fight in you, despite the odds. I admired that a little. Clovis was tougher than they looked. They clung to life with the ferocity of a cave bear protecting her cubs. I made it quick. I placed a foot on your chest and pressed down until your sternum cracked and your heart was crushed. Your eyes went wide and you spat blood over my leg. You expired in a moan of relief. I wiped your entrails off my foot. One less homo sapiens. The world was a better place.
3: Hey, who you talking to, Mahmoud?
2: That biped, the one with the glasses. I thought perhaps he could hear me, the way he was cocking his head.
3: None of them can hear you, believe me, I've tried. And I've been around a lot longer than you, my furry friend. How old did you say you were? Thirteen and a half thousand?
2: It's been 13,354 years since I died in hominid years.
3: <laughs> Amateur, try 67 million.
2: That cannot be possible. How are there any of your majestic bones left, great lizard?
3: Good genes, I guess. Avoidance of stress. The excessively dry climate of the Gobi Desert. I thought you hailed from Florida. The dealer's from Florida. He claims I'm from China, but it's not true. I was smuggled out of Mongolia. He's going to cop hell when they find out.
2: How does one go about smuggling the skull of a Tyrannosaurus rex?
3: Actually, I'm a Tyrannosaurus batar. Some hominids call me Tarbosaurus, but I hate that name, it sucks. We're distant relatives to Tyrannosaurus Rex. Same basic deal, go where you like, eat anything that moves, die in a fight with a young bull, or burn to death in lava. Which was it? Bit of both. Injured after a scrap, lay down to sleep, couldn't get back up again when the forest was on fire. How'd you check out, Mamut? It's a long story. We only have until tomorrow. After that, we'll be hanging in the den of some rich guy with a Jurassic Park fantasy. Still be spending 67 million years in the desert. When were
2: you exhumed, Tyrannosaurus Bataar?
3: Call me T-Bataar, dude, or T-Bat, or just T. Ninety-one it was. In 1991?
2: So you've seen only 16 years of hominid activity. Well, I have that on you at least. They brought me up in 1801.
3: Full skull, tusks and everything?
2: No, they had to piece me together. Things were a little hazy for a while, but then to my surprise, here I was back again.
3: It's a bit of a shock for sure. I kept doing phantom lunges when humans walked past. I never got to taste one. If I were back to my old self, I'd bust us right out of here, friendo. We could go on a rampage in Times Square, eat us a bunch of tourists and Captain America impersonators. I'm a herbivore. Oh, no shit, bummer.
2: You'd probably try to eat me, T-Batar.
3: I don't know, buddy. Those tusks look pretty fierce. So, 1801, huh? You must have some stories.
2: Sounds like you're interested in hearing them. You bet I am. Careful what you wish for, T. Batar.
3: Look, I tell you what, I'll cancel all my appointments and inform my assistant to hold my calls. Impart your wisdom upon me, O oh great mammoth of the steppe. No need to get sarcastic. It's a trait of my species, please. I'm so bored. Pretty, please? With cherries on top? Oh, very well.
2: Do you by any chance know who Charles Wilson Peel is?
3: Never
1: heard of the guy. It all starts with him.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much, Chris.
1: No worries. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to Take Home Reading, a Wheeler Centre audio series. That was Rupert Degas reading the audiobook of the novel *Mammoth*, written by Chris Flynn and published by UQP. Please shop local and support new Australian work. We'll be back soon with another episode of Take Home Reading. Until then, visit wheelercentre.com for the best in books, writing and ideas from Melbourne, Australia and the world.